MSW Media. So, Asha, you spent hours today listening to Trump's lawyers argue about absolute immunity. What were his absolute immunity arguments? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent and a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or Um, yeah, I listened to the whole oral argument today. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> it was actually really interesting. Um, you know, I, I enjoy listening to appellate advocacy and, uh, I found the, the questions to be from the, from the panel to be very good and really elucidating what we would call, you know, the limits, uh, the limiting principle of of Trump's claims uh to to absolute immunity and I thought it highlighted a lot of uh I, I was surprised to see Trump's lawyers double down on the position even given the extreme scenarios that would result if their position were true yeah, I did hear the portion about SEAL Team Six, so we'll have to swing back to that. I, I it was, was a good one. mostly, yeah, that was something. That was some really good questioning. I, you know, I did see a lot of the reaction and some of the commentary afterward, but boy, it sure seemed like a very difficult uh, argument for Trump's lawyers to be making. And I think, actually, you know, part of the reason why they were kind of stuck is they're taking this very extreme position. And they're taking in actually now in more than one court. I mean, they're taking similar positions in Fulton County, Georgia. And this is, I think, Trump's big tactic to try to stall things. Um, and if so, if they kind of give up any ground or cede any ground here, uh, they won't have these arguments available for their inevitable, uh, you know, cert petition to the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. So I would say that the argument was broken down basically into three different issues. The first was a jurisdictional one, which I understand to be really whether or not this particular issue is an appropriate one for what's called interlocutory appeal, meaning that he can have this decided before the rest of the trial takes place as opposed to appealing it after the whole trial is done and if he's convicted. Um so that to me was, it seemed like the debate and both Trump's lawyers and DOJ actually agree that this is an appropriate appeal, interlocutory appeal. And I think they have different reasons for doing that, right? Like, as you said, Trump wants to delay. And I think Jack Smith wants to have this resolved once and for all before going to trial. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head there, Hosh. I was going to say this would be the ultimate way for you know both the Court of Appeals panel, the three judges, to sort of duck the main issues of the case while kicking the can down the road and potentially ultimately creating way more delay. Because if they decided this issue wasn't appropriate, 
you know, that all could get resolved. There could, that could potentially go up to the U.S. Supreme Court even. And then nothing effectively gets resolved other than the fact that we need to, you know, decide the issue now. I will say it is an important question, though, because, and I've mentioned, I think, previously in previous episodes, that you know, usually um, in a criminal case, you don't get this opportunity uh, to have an appeal in the middle of the case. It's a very, very rare circumstance. And so courts have to be careful in terms of how they um, how they uh, construe uh, the ability of a defendant to seek an interlocutory appeal or else we're going to see them in every single case because clients always want to delay. They don't want to, very few criminal defendants are eager to get to trial. Uh, and so if you uh, have a procedure or mechanism where they can get early appeals, they're going to take it. So let's leave that one aside uh, because I think, you know, even what, what the appeals court, I mean, I don't know what they're going to say about jurisdiction, but they can still, address the jurisdictional question, even if they say this isn't appropriate now, they can still offer reasoning on the merits of, of the claim for, you know, for it to be reviewed if it goes up, like give, give a line of reasoning. So I think the merits are still important. Um, and the merits claims really come down to, I think, two big arguments, which we should break down. The first is, and this was surprising to me that this was the one they really kind of hung their hat on, is that a president cannot be criminally prosecuted for acts committed while in office unless he is impeached and convicted and removed for that conduct. Only then does that trigger the ability of the federal government to, or I guess for anyone, to pursue a criminal, a legal criminal prosecution um, for that conduct. Right. And my sense was, and but you listened to the entire argument and I didn't, my sense was that this was almost a position that his lawyers got backed into. In other words, at the end, you know, there was, there was, they were a little all over the place at the beginning and making some broad claims. Then at the end, sort of at a certain point, the judges through questioning got his lawyer to say, well, this is ultimately our position which potentially could give the justices or the justices, excuse me, the uh, court of appeals judges an out where they could just decide that issue. And I think, wasn't there some questioning about whether or not would that dispose of everything if they just decided that one issue? Right. That they were kind of backed into it, but that's, they were, that is the dispositive issue in many ways, because what happened was Trump's lawyer began pontificating about you know, immunity and immunity for official acts and basically was interrupted by a judge and was like, you know, so are you saying that a president like effectively can't be prosecuted for something if they can, you know, if they, if they, if it, if they can categorize it as an official act and the Trump attorney said, yes, they can be prosecuted as long as uh, even you know, as long as they are impeached and convicted and removed first. And let me clarify, the the judge said, are you telling me that a president can't be prosecuted for an official act done for an illegal purpose? Right. So she was kind of homing in on the official act. But what if you do an official act for uh, a, an illegal purpose? Can you, you know, what if you, what if a president is uh, selling pardons 
What if they are selling secrets to foreign governments? Um, she says, you know, pardons are an official act. Uh, speaking with other heads of state is an official act. But if you're engaging in criminal conduct or doing this for a, you know, an illicit purpose, can you not be prosecuted? And so that's when Trump's attorney says, uh, no, but it, uh, they can be prosecuted, but they have to be impeached and convicted and removed first. And that's where she poses the hypothetical. So could the president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his political opponent? And, you know, Kiki, are you telling me that if he were not, you know, impeached and removed, that he wouldn't be able to be prosecuted? And Trump's lawyers like danced around this and she just kept saying this is a yes or no question, like based on your, um, you know, actions or based on your arguments. And he finally, I think, basically got to, yes, only if uh, only if there's impeachment and removal. And I think that was really the most astonishing part of the argument because it was such a great hypothetical to test the limits. And you can see how crazy it is. Right, right. It speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, it's so obvious. It's, you know, I had quoted I th on, on Twitter or X or whatever and on television, some of the lines from Jack Smith's briefing where he posed similar hypotheticals, right? The, the mm -hmm. president essentially ordering the assassination of his political opponents and things like that. So Jack Smith was teeing that up. And obviously one of the judges and, uh, you know, I thought her questioning the, the portion that I heard was very sharp on the point. Um, you, you know, picked it up and ran with it. I will say that, um, I, you know, that is also, I mean, the, the interesting thing is if you look at the impeachment clause, it's clear that the framers contemplated that that sort of situation might arise because they say treason, bribery, I believe, right? And other high crimes and misdemeanors isn't bribery listed. I mean, bribery Correct. is the trading of an official act for something of value. And so, of course, there's an official act there. Um, yes, impeachment is one avenue, but it is odd to suggest since every other public official in my state, almost every, seems like almost every recent governor has been prosecuted uh, and convicted for bribery um, of one kind or another. It's just very um, odd uh, to suggest that the president is somehow exempt from that. So they're resting their argument on a reading of the language in the impeachment clause, which says, that judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification, et cetera, et cetera. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. That nevertheless, I think the appropriate reading is to say, is to read it as even if. In other words, the the maximum punishment you can do in impeachment is to just get rid of the guy. But even if he's impeached, he can still be prosecuted under the laws of the state. What Trump's lawyers want to read nevertheless as is only if. That, you know, here's here's a punishment for impeachment. You can, you know, only get rid of him. And only if that happens... Uh, you can then prosecute him. It's it's a very, to me, twisted reading of that amendment, uh, and I don't even think a plausible one. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think it's plausible either. I mean, partly because of the absurd consequences that would result. I mean, I think that's part of it. And you have to read um, the you know clause in context of the entire Constitution. Um, that said, um, it's better than some of Trump's arguments because at least no one's found to the contrary before. Uh, so it's not like they're flouting existing case law. And at least there's something to point to. Right. They got something to say. So this is where you and I always disagree, Renato, because yeah. you think that if an argument hasn't been made before, that somehow that makes it like like there's there's something legitimate there. And I think if it hasn't been made before, it's because it's probably a really stupid argument that no one has, you know, thought to make because it would require twisting the words in a way. I mean, also in this case, no one has ever made it because we've never been in the situation. I get your point there, but I'm just saying just because the fact that no one has made it doesn't mean it's not dumb. And this one I think is a dumb one. The other, the, the official act one, I can at least like it's, there's something plausible, but imagine the consequences of this. So basically to use the SEAL Team 6 example, the president could order SEAL Team, so President Biden could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate Trump and then he could threaten to assassinate or simply assassinate through SEAL Team 6, through an official order, all the Republicans in the Senate who might vote to convict him or anyone who would vote to convict him. Correct? Yeah, it is absurd. I said I, I conceded. I conceded that. And then and, and essentially pre- prevent the 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 actual proceed the uh, condition precedent precedent from taking place. No, I conceded that. But, you know, in criminal law, I'll just say, so this is like, as you pointed out, and I was going to say, if you, if you didn't, this, this situation has never arisen before. But in run-of-the-mill cases, you would be, I think our listeners would be shocked at the sorts of arguments that are thrown out by criminal defendants in cases. They're pretty bore. And almost anything you could possibly imagine has already been decided before. You know, fraud is not free speech and, you know, anything you could imagine uh, is already been tried. So at least these are new. Uh, there's something they can say that's not, um, I don't know, there's something to it. That's the best I could give it. I think they're the sort of arguments that any criminal defense attorney would make representing Trump. I'm going to give it that. that. That's what I would say. The other piece of this is that it's the exact opposite of what his lawyers argued at his impeachment. And the the judges brought this up because they said, wasn't it Trump's position during his trial in the Senate that he shouldn't be impeached because the appropriate remedy was prosecution and that actually senators based on that argument voted not to convict him? Now, I know you as a criminal prosecutor be like, well, whatever, you make the argument that's going to get your client (laughs) off, right? Um, So I suppose that's true, but I actually... You know, you do have to get to a point where is he stopped in any? I mean, can th- these seem like they're very contradictory arguments, right? Like to argue in one venue that he shouldn't be held accountable there because it, this is a purely legal issue and it shouldn't be it should be subject to this political process, and then go to, into the legal venue and say no, you have to have this political process take place before you can actually trigger the legal consequences. So this happens in in a similar way, not identical, obviously, but in a similar way in a lot of cases, because typically when people find themselves indicted in a criminal case, 
is not the beginning of the road for their problems. They've usually been sued. Sometimes there's other regulators after them. Maybe they have a, the resolution with the CFTC or the SEC or the FTC or some other agency of some kind. And they take positions there that maybe aren't entirely um, congruent with what they're doing. And these things do get brought up. And what I would say is it's not formal estoppel, but it's a problem. And the judges frown upon the fact that you're, you said one thing in one circumstance and another thing in another. And often there's a different attorney involved. And the attorney is like, well, I don't know why, you know, Miss So-and-so made that argument, but I wouldn't. And, you know, this and that. But, yeah, I think it's a problem. And look, Trump. And, he, you know, we started off this whole thing by jokingly, half jokingly, asking whether there's anything plausible to these arguments. I think it's fair to say that these arguments are very challenging to make, right? It's an uphill battle, to put it kindly, for Trump and his team. I think the battle is exactly the point for them, right? In other words, fighting on this issue now eats up some clock. But it also gives him something to talk about and say that he's being railroaded or whatever he's going to try to say to his, I don't know, what he says to the people. He's literally arguing that Biden could have him assassinated. Yes, he is. That is true. I don't think he like considers that all the arguments that he's making about all of this like vast executive power and immunity like belongs to someone else right now. He knows that Biden's not going to do it. Well, exactly. I mean, I think that's part of it, that he can make these extreme arguments because he is the only one who's willing to flout the norms and where such such an extreme outcome might actually happen under him. Um, one thing that the judges try to ask is, why would the president be immune from official acts when the other branches of government can be prosecuted for their official acts? And I thought this was a very good point and it wasn't pressed further. And I wish this judge had. She said, you know, members of Congress can be prosecuted for criminal conduct. And the Constitution actually has an explicit clause that, uh, you know, gives them a pretty broad uh, blanket of immunity. And so and he tried to say, no, but, you know, they're never, you know, they can't be prosecuted uh, or the, whenever they're prosecuted, it's not for legislative acts. And it made me think of Senator Bob Menendez, who was literally doing like engaging in legislative acts. He was lifting holds on aid to um, Qatar and uh, Egypt in, in exchange for money. Um, the speech and debate clause doesn't protect him. And so it's kind of interesting. I think what the judge was trying to ask is then and how do we read in this invisible immunity that's nowhere mentioned for official acts for the president i don't think trump's lawyers had a great answer for that yeah i think that's right it was sort of shooting fish in a barrel that may not be the right analogy but it was very very challenging for them to for trump's lawyers to come up with any answer and the judges i think probably were having a lot of fun uh, throwing these hypotheticals out after a certain point once they realized that they they weren't going to get a, a a valid response or a credible response. I guess one thing that I wonder, Asha, you know, is are these arguments being made because Trump wants to make these arguments and he thinks this is congruent with his vision of the, the presidency or with, you know, trying to, to dupe his followers into sending him more money? Or is this being made in a very crass sense to say, what are the non-frivolous, very low bar, legally, okay, arguments 
that we can make that will run time off the clock. In other words, I think if like in Trump legal headquarters, if you came, if you and I were there on the Trump team, which we're not and wouldn't be, but hypothetically came up with some really silly argument that we thought we could make, but would burn three months off a calendar, everyone would be like, that's a great idea. Let's make that argument, right? Uh, so I, is it that crass over there? Or do you think that they are doing this because they need to advance these arguments to please the boss? I truly don't know. I do think, though, that this argument has benefits for Trump if it were to be accepted, because if he then becomes president, he could literally get away with anything. Well, of course. I mean, realistically, yeah. You know, so I'm sure it's a very appealing argument for their boss. And I think there has to be some other reason that they're making it because strategically it's not actually a great argument um because what they're doing is as we as we mentioned earlier the just the judges were asking so basically your entire theory here rests on hinges on us accepting this interpretation right. of the impeachment clause what doj argued in their theory is listen you know this does not amount to an official act, no matter how you slice it. You don't even need to decide on whether the president has, you know, absolute immunity or, you know, to, to you don't have to reach that big of a question. You can actually decide that you're going to leave that question for another day, but that in these circumstances, no such immunity clearly exists. And there's a jurisprudential, uh, doctrine called constitutional avoidance, which is you don't get to, you don't like go, go around just interpreting the constitution and like, you know, reading in uh, meanings to clauses unless you literally have no other option. And so to me, strategically, what Trump's lawyers are doing are presenting them with this like really big novel constitutional interpretation that they would have to take on in order to for him to prevail and doj is just giving them this much narrower legal question that applies to the facts of this case that doesn't even require them to answer you know any big theory of immunity and i could tell i could hear at least i that doj's lawyer was kind of a little bit you know, it's like if you're watching a debate and you realize that your opponent has made a concession that's like kind of screwed them um, that they were like, yeah, here's what we're asking you to do. And they were pretty happy about it. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why I asked the prior question that I did, Asha, because, you know, when you, when you handle an appellate argument, you're usually trying to give the judges the narrowest possible way to get to your result that you want to get to. You're usually trying to show them what the limits are. They always will push you to the limits. It's usually, it's usually not as absurd as SEAL Team 6, but there's usually some bad result. If you push the argument you're making to some limits, you always have carefully drawn limits. So it's not crazy. All you're asking for is in some very limited set of circumstances, something perfectly reasonable would happen or whatever. You know, that's how you win an appellate argument. That's what DOJ was trying to do. That's what they came up with. Like, and they were basically, they were in the catbird seat here because the prosecutors wrote the indictment. And the reason the government almost always wins on motions to dismiss 
in the criminal context is because the the judges have to assume the facts are true as alleged. So of Jack Smith wrote the indictment, of course it makes it all sound like it's not an official act and everything else. So they, they really had the ability to sort of say and craft something that was very narrow and very reasonable. The Trump team could have tried to give the judges uh, something, a bunch of, for example, uh, sometimes you have like a menu of options to get from point A to point B, or you try to come up with the most plausible thing you can. And the fact that they took this extreme position suggests to me that either they are absolutely trying to please, and I use the boss, I didn't say that because that was the words that I chose. That's that's what Jenna Ellis said, everyone in the Trump legal team calls tr- Trump is the boss, which is something I don't call my clients the boss. Um, although obviously, you know, as a, as a lawyer, you represent your client, but then also, you know, separately, it could also just be, they want to stake out some extreme position that's never been considered before. Cause they think they can get up to the Supreme court on that issue and waste more time. Yeah. And I don't think the Supreme court is going to take on an interpretation of the impeachment clause i just really i really don't i think they're gonna you know find another way to if they take it to to get to this so the only like kind of quasi reasonable argument reasonable in quotes um you know maybe in theory not necessarily on the facts of this case and we've we've unpacked it before but i'll just highlight it and and mention a couple of notable things about the argument is this idea that trump was engaging in official acts and not uh, in his personal capacity, right? Um, and this is why it ultimately still ends up in this whole impeachment clause, because then you have to make the argument that you can never be prosecuted for official acts. But this is sort of the extrapolating from a civil case uh, under Nixon that um, you know things that are in the outer perimeter of a president's duties, uh, that the president has um, civil immunity and they want to extend that to criminal immunity. What I think is really interesting here is that uh, when pressed on, you know, his, what was his campaigning? Was this, you know, official conduct or was it private conduct? And basically Trump's lawyers wanted to collapse running for office with being president. In other words, they, they were like, Oh, that's all the same thing. Like, cause he's holding the office and, you know, holding and running like what's the big distinct what's the distinction and i just think it's interesting that in the section 3 14th amendment context they really want to split hairs because one of the arguments they are making is that the letter of that provision only applies to holding office not running for office so again this is just one of these things where they're just sort of arguing whatever suits them in whatever venue yeah well trump also if you being president as just constantly running for office, right? I mean, it was all, there was no line, like the Hatch Act was so challenging for the Trump administration to try to follow because for them, the official was just a means um, that you would use to try to advance a personal agenda for Trump, uh, which is unfortunate, but the reality. So for him, God knows how you would characterize what the heck he was doing that day. Uh, but it sure looked like uh, something to advance his own ends against the United States interests. Uh, I, I really think that, um, as a side note, this is something I. Uh, my prediction is the United States Supreme Court doesn't take this. I think that they're gonna. There's gonna be some well-reasoned decision in the D.C. Circuit. It's kind of an embarrassment. I don't really think the ju- justices want to just you know um, 
decide, like you said, these grand issues in a way that's going to embarrass Trump and take sides in this very hotly charged issue. They're just going to let the D.C. Circuit decide this issue, and and this is not going to waste as much time as Trump's team wants it to. The one last thing that I think is worth highlighting, again, in terms of just some overlap or implications to other cases, uh, I my ears peaked, uh, you know, perked up when I heard the lawyer concede and acknowledge that Trump is being prosecuted for the same conduct that he was impeached for. So in other words, insurrectionist acts, right? So that's why they're like, you know, because what the judges were saying is, well, he was uh, impeached for um, insurrection. Uh, are you saying that if he had been con- convicted that he could be charged now, even though these are not the same crimes? And he, he conceded yes. And here's why I think that's important. Because if the Supreme Court goes down some road where they say the only way that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment could apply is if a person is convicted of insurrection, then this argument that what he's being charged, like he's being charged and convicted for different crimes, I think his own lawyers have kind of invalidated that because what they've conceded is that what Jack Smith is charging him for is essentially insurrectionist activity, even if it's not 18 USC 2383 rebellion and insurrection, like that specific statute. I just think that's, it was an interesting concession to make. Yeah, it is interesting. I don't think the Supreme Court will actually get to that determination. They're going to use one of the easy ways out um, on the uh, section three of the 14th Amendment issue. Uh, But I think that's really interesting. And I guess it really is just a reminder, I think, though, of how consequential the votes were in that second impeachment. You did have some key Republican votes. I mean, there were Republicans. It wasn't just Mitt Romney that time. There were Republicans who voted to convict Donald Trump. How many were there? Six, seven? Yeah, there was definitely more than a few. Um, but and not enough, but there was nonetheless, uh, a, you know, a number of Republicans. I th- uh, was it was it Bill Cassidy one of them? Wasn't uh, Senator Cassidy one of them? I don't recall all of them, but there was a number of just of of uh, senators who ultimately voted uh, to convict. But you know, it, it the the it was apparent that a number of senators, including Mitch McConnell felt strongly about the issue, but they ultimately, for political reasons, decided it was expedient not to vote to convict because it was going to divide their caucus. And boy, um, you know, they all they would have saved a lot of us a lot of uh, grief and, and potentially saved the country a lot of pain and heartbreak break if they had ultimately voted to convict him that day. And Mitch McConnell's reasoning was we don't need to convict him here. Let the criminal justice system take care of it. He explicitly said that. That was his, that was the way that he persuaded his caucus not to vote to convict him. Yeah. Punting the ball down the road. Um, I don't think the DC circuit court of appeals will do that here. Um, but, uh, definitely, uh, something that, um, is tempting for a lot of judges in a lot of cases Uh, Hopefully, uh, there is some sort of decision here in the not-too-distant future. So, 
Renato. Uh, we also got today a bombshell filing in the Georgia case on behalf of one of the defendants who is making some pretty explosive allegations that Fonnie Willis um, had, and I think continues to have, uh, an intimate personal relationship with the special prosecutor who was assigned to the Fulton County case. Um, And also that she has benefited from what he's been paid because, you know, as his significant other or whatever, that he's taken her on vacations and cruises, et cetera. And so she's, you know, they're sort of, I don't know what the allegation is, but basically like he, in other words, the state is paying him money. Then it's it, the, the benefits of that is, is accruing to her in, you know, at least a uh, personal capacity. So I would like to first just, emphasize here that this is a filing by one party this is um you know it's not unusual to fling mud and create you know discredit prosecutors i'm sure you can talk about that um so maybe we should just talk about that aspect of it and then talk about you know if these are substantiated what you know are they are they troubling and are they like what what should we make of it yeah, I, I think that's important. I mean, w- one thing that I, I'll also just reiterate is we have no idea whether any of this is true. And I think when Ash and I were talking about even this segment, we're cognizant of the fact that sometimes just talking about something creates, uh, moves forward a narrative. What we're trying to do is use this as a way of exploring larger topics um, that are related to this, as opposed to getting into the meat of the factual issues, which we don't really know enough about at this point. Correct. So you, when we were kind of teeing this up before we started recording, you said that this is a pretty typical tactic, um, you know, and particularly in terms of creating discrediting Fonnie Willis in the minds of a potential jury pool, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in when, when pro so when prosecutors are involved in really high stakes cases, there are, it, it, it can be a very, very challenging um, situation to be in. I, I was involved in some very high stakes prosecutions that, I thought were high profile. Now they are absolutely nothing like the cases that we talk about on here where the president of the United States is being prosecuted. But I thought if, Hey, the, you know, there's uh you know, Reuters and Bloomberg and the wall street journal are there. Okay. Well, this is, you know, somebody's paying attention, but you know, in, in cases when people have a lot of money and means are, you're trying to put them in prison, um, their lawyers yeah, are going to come at you. Um, and I will just say when I was a, a federal prosecutor, I read every word I learned over time. I had to read every word multiple times that I filed before I filed it because everything I said could get picked apart. Sometimes that would happen. There'd be people who try to get me fired. They try to discredit me. They would attack me in the press. Um, They would attack me in front of the judge. Um, They would accuse me of trying to lie to the judge. Um, They would try to discredit me in front of the jury. Any little thing that I did was going to be scrutinized. And so I just had to be incredibly careful. And 
I'm definitely, you know, was held to a higher standard. And it, it doesn't just, it's not just me. I'm not like uh, atypical. Um, you know, we had in the R. Kelly trial, for example, one of the, pro, you know, the prosecutor is communicating with a victim um, using a Gmail address, like and having private conversations with a victim. Now, these are women who were brutal, brutally uh, taken advantage of, brutally assaulted by an adult. Obviously, it's understandable why a prosecutor might have some sympathy towards that person. But the mere fact that she was doing that was was attacked by the defense and used as a way of trying to suggest that she was not objective and that she had some sort of inappropriate relationship with these victims or some something along those lines. So it's a common tactic. Um, and why is it done? Because having the conversation... I don't think we have that many listeners in this podcast in Fulton County, but you could imagine this is going to be all over the place in right-wing media. And I looked at the numbers and there's well over six figures worth of people in Fulton County who voted for Trump. Um, there are, you know, there are well over a hundred thousand people who voted in the 2020 election for Donald Trump in Fulton County. And all you need is some of those people on the jury who've been watching a lot of Fox News or Newsmax and hear about these allegations and think, okay, Fonnie Willis is corrupt and it can influence a verdict potentially. Yeah. And I would just say sort of from a broader perspective, even beyond the jury pool, you know, this is, Again, if we're looking at it through the lens of information warfare, which I like to do because I think that Trump knows how to manipulate perception in a way that benefits him, you know, this it it's a, a very effective way to discredit an outcome uh, before it even gets there. And, you know, by muddying the waters, by making people not really know which way is up. Um, and, you know, we see in in other contexts this happened right after the mar-a-lago uh search you know claiming that the evidence was planted there is a a very powerful um effect for having your narrative get out first right and so even now if Fonnie willis were to file a response refute them it's none of that is going to get nearly as much attention even not just conservative media even from the regular media because the explosiveness, the news cycle has already picked up on it. They're going to have moved on. By the time she gets around to responding, it it's just not going to have the same um, amplification that the first story did. And the first story is just the first mover advantage in these things is always very powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I, one thing I would just say, you know, separately, just I will make it a, a point because I don't think it's apparent to our listeners is that if these allegations are true in some form, it's unlikely to impact the criminal proceedings. That's the irony here. In, in the sense that your indictment isn't dismissed because the prosecutor does something inappropriate that's unrelated to, let's say, you know, concocting evidence in your case or something like that. In other words, if it's there's not some, misconduct. It's not yet misconduct for the purposes. In other words, if to the extent it's like you know, an improper use of public funds or something like that, that's a harm to somebody else. But it's not, it, it doesn't have any relationship to the evidence in your case. And, you know, I mentioned to tie this to our prior segment, Asha, I mentioned how in criminal cases, defendants bring all sorts of arguments. 
every argument under the sun has been brought about what prosecutors do silly things, evil things, misguided things, like it should result in my conviction getting overturned. Uh, those courts tend to reject those arguments unless it, it somehow impacted the evidence that was before the jury at that trial. Okay, so all of that, I get what you're saying, but now let's, I mean, if these allegations were substantiated, I don't think my personal opinion is we don't just say, well, it wasn't misconduct. It doesn't affect the defendants. Um, it's totally fine. There are ethical implications here and implications about perception and the, you know, faith in the impartiality of the administration of justice and all of these things. I mean, they're so fragile right now. Um, I feel that if any of this is substantiated, it would be a huge unforced error and just very, very bad, um, especially in light of the role of the special prosecutor being one to ensure an additional layer of independence and impartiality. I, I don't really see how you can get around that being compromised if there is, in fact, an intimate and personal relationship between that person and the prosecutor. I mean, I, I would say the same thing if like Merrick Garland, you know, appointed somebody we found out that he was like involved with, I mean, it, it would be weird. That's not appropriate. If Jack Smith and Merrick Garland were dating. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I hear your, I hear your point. I, I think that, you know, I, the way I look at it is I won't even opine on, like you said, whether it's misconduct or ethical issues, like, cause I'm not an expert in Georgia ethics law um, or ethical rules or so forth. But what I would say is this, a couple things. I agree with you hundred percent in terms of perception. And one point I will just make more broadly is prosecutors have to be very concerned about the perception of the, how, of whether or not they're perceived to be fair. So I, I think that's really, really important for a prosecutor you know, that, you know, one prosecutorial decision that was heavily criticized in right wing media, but and more broadly, was the whole Jussie Smollett issue and that unveiled in Chicago, that unfolded in Chicago. And part of the issue there was a series of, you know, similarly unforced errors in which a, pro a prosecutorial office was making decisions that created an appearance that there was some sort of favoritism being offered or that improper considerations were there. And I, to me, a, one of the, my personal views is that prosecutors have extraordinarily broad discretion that when exercised appropriately can achieve ju just results, but has to be very heavily policed because when abused, um, it can be abused with very little oversight, with very little consequence. And so I just think we have to hold prosecutors to a pretty high standard as a result. Yeah. And I think we've seen the perception problem play out with the Clarence Thomas issue. You know, I mean, we've all not we've all, well, I guess I've been saying that, um, you know, when when you're getting largesse from donors who have interests and cases in front of you, it's not a good look. And um, and then more to the point in, you know, recently with conflicts of interest, like you just don't want to create situations where 
even if there is nothing truly under like in fact um an obstacle to impartiality that creates the impression that you are especially in such a polarized environment it's just all of it just eh, you know so i'm really hoping that this is just a lot of smoke and mirrors you know that this is you know sort of the equivalent of the of the joe biden impeachment hearings like we're just gonna put stuff out there and you know claim to be looking for evidence or whatever i think it's that would be a very risky move to do in a court of law i think but whatever i mean it could be it could be what's happening yeah i don't know i'm withholding judgment on this one way or the other but i do think it's helpful for our listeners to understand how high stakes um prosecutions can be and how prosecutors have to be very careful i mean i will say that being a pro- a prosecutor in prosecuting people who had the means to fight back pretty strongly while my hands were tied a little bit as being because I was in a, a public official it taught me a lot about being uh careful so before we go asha you know last time i think you mentioned that Pancake has learned how yes. to fetch, which is incredibly advanced. He's right here. I'm going to bring him in. Stop giving yourself a bath. You're in. He has appeared many times during today's podcast. If you wa- if you don't watch the YouTube version, you are missing out on many pancake appearances. Henry is very, very smart. And he's so smart that, you know, at times he has trained us to um, respond to his various requests. So I think I've mentioned before, Asha, Henry's kind of a businessman who is very busy all the time. And um, he's gotten so busy lately that he's barking orders to us all the time. Uh, so we have enlisted the perfect manners training uh, group uh, near us. And so uh, Henry has been learning yes and no. And, you know, he is, uh, you know, my wife and I have been working to train him to relax a little bit because he is uh awfully urgently busy all the time i only heard half of that because my cat attacked me and um my uh headphones got disconnected but i think that's great that i've never i mean i've never owned a dog so i don't know anything about dog training does 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 obviously pancake Pancake does not perfect manners as well or care what my commands or needs are well, dogs, our dog is basically like, uh, you work for me. I'm a businessman. I got a lot of things that are going on. And so I'm going to supervise you. So he'll follow my wife around and bark at her, you know, when he thinks it's time time for him to get a treat or to whatever, go for a walk. And it's a little much at times. So Henry is um, learning uh, the hard way that maybe he needs to take a relaxing vacation, just like uh, if we did. Who took care of him while you're gone? My mother-in-law, who is a saint and did not put up with any oh, of that. Really? She was not, she was not uh, being supervised by, by okay. Mr. Henry. Uh, Henry uh, worked, worked for her, not the really? other way around. So that was part of the inspiration. Okay, good. Yes. Good. I'm glad to see that uh, you're starting off the new year to develop good habits for Henry. Exactly. Try the same with pancake.
M S W Media.